0: In 1996, director Joel Cohen and star Francis McDormand gave the world a gritty insight into the wild world of attempting to kidnap your wife. In 2021, the biggest name in bourbon podcasting
1: produces one of the most exciting craft spirits.
0: The film is Fargo. The whiskey is Pursuit United. And we'll review them both. This is the the Film and Whiskey Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1996 Cohen Brothers classic, Fargo.
0: Bob, I, I, I just want to get it out of the way right now. I haven't seen this movie beforehand. And before you give me any crap about it, our spectacular, beyond amazing <laughs> guest host today... Kenny from The Bourbon Pursuit also has not seen the movie. Yeah. So I don't want to hear it today.
1: Brad, here's the great thing about when you are super passionate, you completely undermine my super professional build up and intro of our guests. And so we're just going to throw that, you know, out the window at this point and say, hey, everybody, we have a spectacular special guest host with us today. It's Kenny Coleman, co-founder of Bourbon Pursuit podcast and Pursuit Spirits.
2: Kenny, how you doing today, man? I'm doing all right, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan. And yes, I I will say I am with uh, with Brad over here that I did not watch it until you all had asked me to come on and you gave me the list of choices. And my wife is a big movie buff and she's like, you should do Fargo. You're going to love Fargo. And uh, I've watched it a few times now in, in preparation for this. So I'm like, super excited to join you all.
0: Yeah, we're excited to have you, man. Well, it sounds to me like maybe we should have had you come on for the whiskey segment and your wife on for the movie <laughs> segment.
2: It probably wouldn't be a bad idea. She she knows what she's <laughs> she she has a degree in electronic media and she was so she she spent all of her time like on old movies and she, well, I'll, I'll talk about stuff all the time and I'll be like, oh yeah. Like, was that in Casablanca or something? Like, cause I've never seen Casablanca. And so she'll, she'll just rip me a new one.
0: Oh, Kenny, my you just killed a little bit of Bob. So <laughs> no,
2: this, this is exciting to me. This is the
1: whole conceit of our podcast. Like we launched this thing. Because I was a huge movie nerd, Brad's one of my best friends, and he hadn't seen a ton of these movies. And so we're like, hey man, let's start introducing you to these movies and let's get into the world of whiskey while we do it. So this podcast is all about discovery and championing new experiences. So we are happy to
2: have you along for the ride, man. I'm super excited to be here. I'm glad you made the movie choices because they seem a little bit more uh, culturally apropos and and make you sound a lot smarter because if it was me, I'd be like, oh, yeah, we should talk about Tommy Boy. You know, like that would be something that I would say. (laughs) Hey, man, that's not out of the question either. Tommy Boy is a classic.
0: (laughs) I would say Bob is an indiscriminate movie lover. He will get himself some Tommy Boy and love it. He and I have enjoyed watching The Room together. You know, he's all over the place. We call me a man of taste. That's what that means, Brad.
1: <laughs>
0: taste and culture.
1: Well, as we said, Kenny is one of the founders and the co-host of the Bourbon Pursuit podcast, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. Kenny, I mean, I know that, that you guys have your hands in so many things now, and it's got to be hard to distill down the history of this podcast into just a short amount of time. But for our listeners who might not be familiar with Bourbon Pursuit, can you give us just a quick history of how that podcast came to be and how it got to the place
2: where it is now? Sure, bob and uh, act like i didn't realize when you said distill down like i i see what you're doing there. It's, oh, no, you know what? I didn't even <laughs> yeah. I didn't even think
0: about that. Yeah, look at you. Yeah, it's like it's got, whis- it's got whiskey on the mind. It's yeah, right. all in your subconscious now. <laughs>
2: yeah, so Bourbon Pursuit, we started back in March of 2015 with uh, an idea of doing something that was different. I mean, kind of like what you all are doing. You you take a different angle into whiskey. You know, you bring in movie reviews. At the time when we started back in March of 2015, there were only a few different podcasts out there. And of course the most notable one was whiskey cast And it, but it's very much B2B it's much industry news and it covers everything from scotch, Japanese whiskey bourbon, of course a little bit of everything. There were some other podcasts that were out there with, you know, a few guys from Elmer T Lee around a microphone saying it smells like vanilla and caramel. And for me, I want to be educated when I listen to something. I want to be educated. I also want to be kind of you know, stimulated a little bit with some conversation and some humor. And my manager at the time for my, my actual day job, he has a very successful podcast called The Cloudcast, where he has startup CEOs that come on and they talk about you know really what they're building and, and try to put more of a name out there. And I said, you know what's really missing in this world of bourbon? Is a voice from the actual distillers, and it's because we didn't want to come on because we were nobody. We, we didn't. We didn't know. we were no, who's going to listen to, you know, some guy named Kenny and not getting Ryan from Bardstown, Kentucky. Like nobody's going to listen to that. But we knew that if we could get the right people on, it kind of has a little bit of immediate credibility. So trying to talk to people like Al Young and Harlan Wheatley mm-hmm. and, and getting them to kind of share their stories. And I think really that's really what we wanted to do is we wanted to capture the story and the voices behind the people of the brands that people love. And by that's just kind of been a really good recipe for success and making sure that we can provide our listeners an insight into the lives of the people that they're just not – it's not all just robotics and Cranes that are moving corn and distilling stuff. And it's, it's actually people. It's people with yeah. families. It's people with hobbies. It's people that that really love their job and what they and really love what they do, and, and they share in the passion of the history of bourbon whiskey too. And that really kind of set us off on a, a good rocket ship to really create, you know, one of the, the, the at this point the, the the world's largest whiskey podcast. And it's just been really humbling to kind of see the people take a, a same interest in it, that they want to learn more about it. They want to know more about it and they want to hear from these people. And we've diverted from time and time again to try new different things I mean, one of the first things that we did at the very beginning that is now a long-running segment is doing the Bourbon Community Roundtable, where we bring in uh, you know, guys from Breaking Bourbon and Blake from Bourboner and Fred Minnick and some of the top bloggers that are out there, and we just discuss a, a potpourri of bourbon culture and, and topics to kind of keep it, I guess you could say, uh, topical for, for the time period. So it's just been one of those things where we're continually trying to to do different things and, and progress and, and it really just having a lot of fun with it. So hopefully we can, uh, we just actually had our sixth, an- six year anniversary. So hopefully we've just got more years ahead of us. Well, listen,
1: man, I, when I look at where you guys came from versus where you are now, it has just absolutely exploded. I mean, obviously you guys are now dabbling, not even just dabbling. Like you, you started with picking single barrels and now you have an entire, whiskey company that you're running in terms of production and blending. And I mean, it's, it's insane. I, you guys are basically what I'm saying, the Amazon of, of bourbon related activities
2: at this point. <laughs> uh, I, I, Amazon might be a stretch. I'll, I'll take a, I'll take a quote off. Of, I'll take a quote off a of Ryan on this one. It's, it's, you know, we, we started the podcast and we talked about limited releases forever and then it became impossible to find limited releases. And so we said, all right, single barrel picks, like that's the new unicorns that we should all chase after. And now it's hard getting single barrel picks. We're like, oh, screw it. We're just going to start our own whiskey company. So it was just a <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's just a natural progression. But no, it's uh, it's been a fun ride. That's for sure. In any case, it's
1: good to have Kenny along for the ride. It's been kind of a fun experience so far having guest hosts on season four. And I'm always trying to feel out when we have a guest host come on and they pick the movie to talk about if this is you know, one of their favorite films of all time. And if it's going to be hard for us as hosts, Brad, to kind of point out flaws or things that we may or may not have liked about it. So this actually is a very freeing feeling right now, knowing that we can all just talk, you know, however we want to about this movie, knowing we're not going to offend each other. I liked this movie a lot, Brad. And for me, the Coen brothers have always been kind of hit or miss. We talked about this a little bit with our No Country for Old Men episode. You know, recently they've just been really leaning into like the nihilistic elements and it just seems really downbeat. It seems like sometimes their movies don't have a moral or a point to them and they're just about like the chaos in the world. This movie I I found really refreshing watching it this time because I really did think there was like a clear point to the story. There was a moral to learn at the end. This is like the Coen brothers to me kind of working at the peak of their powers where you have all those elements of classic Coen brothers movies like. Dumb people getting way in over their heads, trying to commit a crime and paying the price for it. But it wasn't just the random depressing nature that you get at the end of No Country for Old Men.
0: Yeah, honestly, I, I really struggled a little bit with a lot of this movie, but I'll just go ahead and spoil it. The very final scene of the film redeemed it for me, Yep, like totally redeemed it for me. And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, like I'm I'm down with this. So, when he's so like getting, while when he's getting dragged out of the hotel room kind of thing, is that uh, the getting dragged out of the hotel room helped, but honestly it was the final scene of Francis McDormand and her husband in the Damn, bed yes. that just made me kind of go. Yeah. Like it is the little things in life that are important. Yeah. And it <laughs> was
1: that. that whole scene. you know what, Brad, I actually had this earmarked for like the second half of our episode, but like that, that scene for me is the one that did it as well because it put the entire movie into context And all these kind of random, like disparate things that happened in the plot, I thought they really came into focus because that scene was such a great, you know, metaphor or moral for what they were trying to say. And we'll get we'll get to talking about all this. And I really do want to drill down on that one scene. But before we get into all that, Brad, it is time for us to move into America's favorite segment, which we call Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. And that is the case today. Brad, as you know, we have implemented a strict one minute limit on Brad Explains this year. Do you think that you can break down the plot of Fargo for our listeners in under 60 seconds, Brad?
0: I think I could do it in under 30 seconds, Bob. Well, let's see if you can. Go. <laughs> it's like a game of name that tune over here. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. So Fargo is a movie about a guy named Jerry Lundegaard who has gotten in way over his head with a crazy business deal gone wrong. He tries to have his wife kidnapped and fake kidnapped in order to make money off of the uh, ransom that her father, who is wealthy, would pay. And things go so far off the rails. It is unbelievable. And you slowly follow Frances McDormand as she, in her own pregnant North Minnesotan way, tries to solve this crime. Wow.
1: Wow. There it is. That really was 30 seconds. You did it. Boom. You're going to get a gold star for that one. That's the quickest Brad explains we've ever had. All right. So as we get into talking about this movie, I think we should start with the performances. Like we've talked about the Coen brothers a little bit on this podcast before. We'll get around to talking about them, but I really want to focus on how good this cast is. You know, it has an Oscar winning performance from Frances McDormand, who won for Best Leading Actress. You have Oscar nominated performance from William H. Macy, who was up for Best Supporting Actor. You've got a great Steve Buscemi in this movie. You've got Peter Stormare as like his mute accomplice. I I mean, top to bottom, I think all of the performances in this movie are incredible. And let me throw it over to Kenny. If you had to highlight one performance in particular that stood out to you, like who would you choose to focus on?
2: I mean, I would say the the main character of it, and and this is because I don't know if it's just me, but I've got family that live in Wisconsin, and they talk exactly like that. It's <laughs> it's like, oh, you betcha, and you know, is it the stop and go lights? You want a soda, like, and it, it just feels so wholesome. And yeah. to be able to kind of keep that that character the whole entire way through, where it just felt so natural and so real like maybe not too real like I I don't really think you could find maybe a police detective that actually speaks like that in real life but (laughs) who knows I think that kind of plays in maybe to the comedy aspect of this that you wouldn't expect somebody to have that type of accent to come through here and 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 try to you know solve murders of people you know getting shot on the side of the road kind of thing right
1: Brad, how about you? Where would you start if you were talking about performances?
0: Well, first, I I just have to agree um, with Kenny that the the accents in this movie are just phenomenal. Like, I I feel like they're the most Canadian-American accents I have ever heard in my life. But the thing that really kills me and just made me laugh the whole time was their choice of last names. I mean, we got... Jerry Lundegaard, we got Marge Gunderson, we've got uh Gayir Grimsrud, Like like I don't know what they the were doing most when Scandinavian they
1: Scandinavian were... names ever.
0: <laughs> but like everybody in Minnesota apparently is just <laughs> came straight off the boat from Scandinavia. <laughs> <laughs> And I just I just thought that was great, especially when uh, Francis McDormand's little um, friend is like, oh, old son of a Gunderson. Yeah, right. (laughs) Come on. Come on.
1: So on this watch through for me, you know, Francis McDormand obviously stands out. She won the Oscar. I think it was well deserved. She's great in this movie. But the thing that I really noticed and I hit pause when her first scene came up, she doesn't enter this movie until 33 minutes into the movie. And it's a 98 minute movie. So you've got a whole third of the movie before she even shows up. And because of that, I was really blown away with the other performers in the movie because they held my attention for so long. And I was really, really invested in what was happening with this crime. And for me, especially, I think William H. Macy might be the best performance in this whole movie. I think the whole movie hinges on him having this, uh, befuddled and kind of in over his head, panicky reaction to everything going on around him. He is so clearly out of his league dealing with these criminals. He didn't plan this this heist or not even heist this crime well enough. And his whole life is falling apart around him. I really do think that it's it's kind of a shame he didn't
2: win an Oscar for this movie because I really thought he deserved it. I mean, you just kind of saw everything just kind of like fall apart in front of him. Where it was just a series of bad decisions and, yeah. and knowing that you guys really hit the nail on the head there that it is when you get yourself so far. I mean, it's like when you tell a lie, I mean, I could tell it from my own experience, like you tell a white lie and then you're like, oh, it's cause I don't want to go see somebody on a Friday night. I'd rather just stay home. And then you were like, well, I just didn't want to go out with them, but I'm still going to go out to dinner somewhere. But you post a picture, and then they see it on Facebook, and you're like, "Oh, wait, no, that was like last Thursday. I just <laughs> posted today." And so the lies just keep going deeper, and you have to just continually like dig yourself out, and that's that's exactly what happened, uh, and you know, with with, with Jerry Lundegaard in that, and William H. Basie. it just it just continually just kept digging himself into this hole.
0: Yeah. Well, and you you get this sense that he is so frazzled just with his normal job that this on top of it is is just really blowing the lid off for him. And I, I think that's something that I really love about the Cohen brothers' writing in this movie is that the the characters in this movie, I feel like they almost represent the platonic ideal of movie tropes for the tropes that they portray. Right? Like Lundegaard is this in over his head inept Used car salesman and he plays that trope the used car salesman literally like just perfectly like he, like he doesn't know what he's doing and he also fulfills the trope of like the son-in-law that can never live up to daddy right mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. like a common thing that we saw in like Brokeback Mountain and so he fills that trope just perfectly and then you have uh, Peter Stormare who is like the cold silent killer. And he's just utterly perfect at it. Steve Buscemi is the nervous kind of rat like criminal type figure that he just plays that role perfectly. And I just feel like every single character in this movie is the perfect version of the trope that they are trying to play. Yeah, I, I, I don't know.
1: Does that make sense? I totally agree, Brad. And th- there's two things I think that keep this movie from falling apart. And that's first of all, they found the absolute perfect cast for what they were trying to do. Like, if they had worse actors in these parts, I think the characters would verge into being, like, too over the top, too too much, like, a caricature. And then on, on top of that, this, I think, is the best script that the Coens have ever written. Like, it's just, it's so funny, it's so witty, every scene builds to a great payoff, you know, and you obviously have way deeper themes to talk about as well, which I think they do really, really well, but even from the very beginning... You know, you have this huge buildup where this car is kind of coming over like the crest of this hill and the music has swelled and you think there's going to be this epic thing, this epic showdown. And the very first thing they cut to is this rinky dink little bar in Brainerd, Minnesota. And like, you know, uh, William H. Macy goes in and he's talking to these two guys who are fed up with him. They're planning this really small time crime that they're none of them know what they're doing and they're accusing William H Macy of not being very good at planning it and he just says no 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 you know it's it's real sound it's it's going to be it's going to be fine and then Steve Buscemi's like do you still want your wife kidnapped and he's like oh yeah yeah <laughs> it's just it's so funny how they highlight the complete i don't know what's the word ineptitude In- ineptitude yes of all these people it, I think it's like I laughed out loud multiple times watching this movie. I think the humor really works.
2: Like, why didn't you just go ask her? Why did not you yeah. ask her dad? Like, yeah, yeah, it's just basically just giving them all the right answers. He's like, no, 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 you, you can't do that. I can't do that. <laughs> and then you
1: move into that great scene after that where he's eating dinner with his father-in-law and he's talking about how, you know, he, he's doing this for the family and for him and Gene and Scotty. And his his father-in-law just says, Gene and Scotty never have to worry. And that's the end of the scene. And that says so much in that one little line of dialogue. There's so much unspoken there. And in that moment, like, first of all, I want to give credit to that actor, Harv Presnell, because he plays that role perfectly. His father-in-law is just the world's biggest asshole. And and you hate him for William H. Macy.
0: I don't know, man. I kind of came at it from the sense of like, yeah, the guy's a dick but he never planned on kidnapping his wife. (laughs) Like, to me, (laughs) (laughs) he comes off as kind of a jerk, but at the same time, like, William H. Macy is the villain of this movie. Like, 100% in my mind, he is Mm. the bad guy. And so for me, Harv Presnell, uh, his dad, who is (laughs) another good name, Gustafson... (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> like to me, he comes across as just this kind of hard ass who's worked, you know, super duper diligently his entire life and is just like unimpressed with who William H. Macy is. And based on what the Cohen brothers have shown me of William H. Macy, I ain't got nothing to be impressed of either. <laughs> well,
2: see, that's what I was I was getting ready to ask you that. I was like, is there anything that I missed of of why you no know, the father in law didn't approve of him? Or is I mean, did he get burned like cause he got overplayed on a true coat or something like that. Right. I mean, I, maybe it's just
1: that he sees right through him, you know, that he is just this kind of uh, snake oil salesman that will do whatever it takes to try to get himself a couple more dollars. And that's something that, you know, as an audience, we understand immediately how desperate he is because he's trying to have his own wife kidnapped. But then as the movie goes on, like you said, Kenny, like the lies start to compound on top of each other but even more than that, you start to understand that he's been doing stuff like this for a long time when he's at work and uh, the the bank calls because they sent over money for a loan, but he sent them the wrong VIN numbers and he's clearly committing fraud there. And then, you know, he goes down to uh, where the mechanics working, the guy who was his connection to these people who were going to kidnap his wife. And he can't get a hold of them to stop the crime. And he's asking him, you know, is there an alternate phone number I can use? And it's like <laughs> you, you have you have this sense that this guy clearly did not plan this well. And so, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe his father in law just knew all along that he was he was just no good.
0: Well, for me, I got the sense. And I think this is mainly because of William H. Macy's performance. I got the sense that he wasn't necessarily. Like at heart, a used car salesman that he wasn't a snake oil salesman. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't at heart trying to set out to deceive and and steal from people. To me, he felt like a kind of goofy but sincere guy who is always a little bit farther in the deeper end than he should be. That he's always been kind of over his head, whether it's with the girl that he was dating, you know, that, you know, he obviously married or with the job that was given to him by the father in law. Like he probably wasn't a great executive sales manager, but he probably just barely got by and he was always trying to bite off a too big of a piece. And that's what got him in trouble that I don't know. That's kind of the 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 feeling I got about him. And the the damning thing for him is that he never turned to somebody for help. He he just kept struggling in the deep end, and then he pulled other people under with him in the deep end to keep himself afloat until the point where his wife is dead, and his father in law is dead, and he's on the lam. And he's <laughs> and running. His he's running life. From, running from the cops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I don't know. Does that sound? I, I mean plausible. I, I think it's plausible.
1: I just don't know if I totally agree with it because. I think from the beginning, they're trying to give us like little breadcrumbs or clues into his character and like, you know, his integrity as a person, even after this thing has gone down and he's talking with his father-in-law and his business partner about how to give them the $1 million and how it has to go through him because it's his deal. And the guy just says, Hey, how's your son taking all this? And the look on his face is just, (laughs) I hadn't even thought about how this would affect my son until now. And, you know, the funny thing about it, I mean, it's it's very darkly funny, but we really don't see the son very much after that. And all of, you know, all of his son's life has fallen apart. His mom's dead. His grandpa's dead. His dad's in prison. And it just goes to show how little this guy was thinking about anybody but himself. And so I don't know, because I, I think I think all that was already there in him or he wouldn't have put this this plan into place. So I, I don't know if I see him so much as like a guy who fell on hard times or was, you know, Trying to do something to help as much as a person who was only concerned about himself.
2: I guess another question that that I don't know if I really got answered for me was, you know, how did how did Jerry get into the kind of the deep water at the very beginning? You know, needing the money and needing the cash and and mm-hmm. being desperate for it. I mean, was it just maybe a, a failing car business, and he, that's why he's always trying to upsell people on True Code or something like that?
0: I I think actually for me. Kenny, I I don't have an answer for you. And for me, that was actually one of the strongest points of the script was the fact that the like in my mind, the reason he is in trouble isn't the point of the movie at all. Like all you need to know is that he is in trouble and you get some vague details about like I couldn't tell if maybe the deal with these cars where he was trying to send the VIN numbers over, but he couldn't maybe like that deal was why he needed the money. Or if that was just a different theft that he was trying to do, I who knows, but in the end, that's not what really mattered for me. All I needed to know is that he was in trouble and that he was trying to solve it in a super sleazy way. And I actually loved that about the script.
1: I do think to some extent, the the funny thing about his character is that you, Whether you like it or not, you find him to be one of the more sympathetic figures in the movie. And and at the same time, like Brad said, he really is the villain of the movie. He is the most weaselly person among all of these criminals and terrible people. And yet, for some reason, you know, when he's being dragged out of that motel room at the end of the movie, you really do get the sense of, wow, this this is a very tragic moment to watch this guy's life fall apart like this. So I think it's interesting that they managed to kind of get us on his side, even while we acknowledge he's definitely
2: the bad guy here. It's like, yeah, I would say it's, it's almost like, like rooting for Pablo Escobar. You know, you're yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's like so suave and you feel you, you think he's you think he's like a good guy. You're like, yeah, I, I think it's just a misunderstanding at the end of the day. And then at the very end, you're like, nah, he he really
0: screwed up. <laughs> uh, Jerry, Jerry Lundegaard, the Pablo Escobar of the north.
2: <laughs> the thing
1: that I really love about this movie, Brad, and we know we've talked about William H. Macy's character is that everybody in this movie who is who isn't Marge Gunderson is basically a bad guy in in one way or another. And the whole point of the movie, to me, really boils down to the idea that some people are content with what they have and some people want more and will go to great lengths to get it. And all of the people in this movie who are greedy people, people who exhibit greed, all of them get punished by the end of the movie. William H. Macy is in prison. His wife is dead. You know, even even his father in law, the guy who was trying to talk down the ransom on his own daughter so that he didn't have to pay so much money. He gets shot. He's dead. Steve Busemi's dead. Peter Stormare is in jail. Like even the guy that approached uh, Marge at that restaurant that you find out later, his wife's really not dead. He's mentally unstable and he was trying to get at Marge. He's left alone at the end of the movie. And. And he was never actually married yeah, to the. That's woman. what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> I, and, and I think it's so interesting that the Cohens wrote a character like Marge, who is just holy good. She is good. She sees the good in people, even when that guy's making a pass at her. She's you know Minnesota nice. She's saying like, oh, it's okay. You know, I I could just see you better when you sit on that side of the table and. I, I love that she doesn't ever become corrupted, and I love the fact that unlike No Country for Old Men, this movie ends with somewhat of a happy ending. You see the benefit of these people whose lives we've chuckled at through the whole movie because they're kind of boring. They live this boring Minnesotan life where they're just eating at buffets all the time and going to bed early, and yet, by the end of the film, you realize, you know what? Maybe they have the best life of anybody. They don't need any more than they have.
2: It's just a three cent.
0: It's terrific.
2: Hoffman's Blue Wing Teal got the 29 cent. People don't much use the three cent.
0: Oh, for peace. Of course they do.
1: Whenever they raise the postage, people need the little stamps.
2: Yeah?
0: When they're stuck with a bunch of the old ones.
2: Yeah.
1: I guess.
0: It's terrific.
1: I'm so proud of you, Norm. Heck, Normina, we're doing pretty good. And I kind of loved having a movie with a moral. It really, I, I thought it really hit home for me.
2: You really broke that one down. That's pretty good about looking at hey, it from, thanks, a, from a moral. I was just looking at it like, oh yeah, they were eating it like a buffet. <laughs> Those meatballs look delicious. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, like they pass on the fish, but they, they get every other yeah. type of
0: chicken on their plate. <laughs> right. Yeah, there, there's a certain simplicity to the way that they live that the Coen brothers are trying to highlight. And I, I think that that is one place where they strike such a black and white difference between the people who just eat at buffets and are satisfied with their simple, boring lives are good and people who want more are bad. And I, I think that that black and white contrast works well for movies. And I don't think you would see a movie like this in 2021. And so I'm thankful for movies like this. But when you, when you try to apply a lens like this to real life, it does kind of break down a little bit because there's a lot of people who live in the great white north of Minnesota th- that are not satisfied or happy or good with their lives. And so I, I think that there- there's room for nuance that the Coen brothers don't dive into. And yet at the same time, I'm so happy that they left it as black and white as they did because it made for a satisfying film. I, I don't know. I'm-, I'm conflicted a little bit.
2: Well, I don't think this film would actually exist today. I mean, I think cell phones kind of ruin a lot of movies because at the very beginning, he could have just texted or called or gotten somebody a hold of and said, is there there another another number I can dial? Like, I'm sure you (laughs) could find you could Google somebody. Right. I'm sure Steve Buscemi somewhere on the white pages, you could find him. So uh, cell phones could end up ruining a lot of these older movies.
1: All right, guys. Well, we seem to be on a pretty good roll here with Fargo. We're going to hit pause. We're going to try this Pursuit United. But before we get to that, we are grateful and honored and lucky to have one of the founders of Pursuit Spirits here with us today. Kenny, what can you tell us about the the production, the idea, the dream behind Pursuit Spirits? How did you get to this point?
2: It was all a random. It's just like tiny chances that all kind of built up to this. You know, starting Bourbon Pursuit, it's not like we had a dream or an ambition to go and create our own whiskey or our own label or anything like that. It was just chance. We had ended up talking about a particular brand on the podcast um, during a roundtable called Doc 52s, which was this independent bottler that's this liquor store that was doing their own private labeling, which we were talking about like this isn't new. Like grocery stores and stores like that way back in the day used to do their own private label whiskey, what they used to have. And I get a call the very next week and it's this barrel broker and he goes, hey, you know, you all talked about this brand, I helped build it. Would you be interested in doing your own? It's not like we snapped right at it and said like, oh yeah, absolutely let's do this." We said, well, let's talk and meet and let's figure out really what this means. And to kind of spare you some of the the boring details along the way, We ended up uh, kind of cutting a deal and working at a a great way to kind of finance this. If anybody knows you get into the bourbon business, it is a very heavy front loaded type of venture because bourbon barrels aren't cheap, especially when you're buying sourced product. And we got the rare opportunity to actually go and select every single barrel that we wanted to do for our pursuit series line. So they were just bottled barrel strength, uncut, unfiltered, one barrel at a time. And that's kind of how we would release it. And about a year or so into it, our broker said, you all got to come up with a blend. These single barrels are killing us because it is. It's taxing from a label creation perspective. It's taxing from a bottling perspective because it's a lot easier to sit there and bottle 2000 things at one run than it is to just do like 150. So it took us uh, quite a long time to try to figure out, well, what do we what's our next step? Like what are we gonna do? Because we knew that we could pick good single barrels. We've been picking single barrels as part of the podcast for a long time as part of our private barrel club. So the problem with getting into the, the sourcing side and especially trying to do a, a big batch is that if you're trying to make a price point more readily accessible to consumer, it gets really, really hard to do it with either an aged product or a, you know something that's just like a pure Kentucky product. And so trying to find something that is available on the sourced market that is good and young is not easy. And our broker ended up sending, he sent us samples, tons of samples over time. And he ended up sending us a, another sample. He's like, this four-year Tennessee product will blow your mind. And we're going like, all right, here we go again. Let's, let's see what we got here. And we tried it and he was not joking. It blew our mind. It was better than some of the seven to 10 year Kentucky bourbons that we had had. And we kind of knew at this point, we had something that was going to be a good base um, that we could kind of create something that's very unique. And so we needed to figure out, well, what else can we do besides just having one component into this blend? So the other part that kind of played into this was we had a, we already had a established relationship with Finger Lakes Distilling up in New York. And we're a big fan of what they can do of craft whiskey at a young age. Some other four to seven, four to seven year old stuff. I mean, it just knocks the socks off of most things that we'd see in Kentucky at this age. And we've always said if Finger Lakes was based in Kentucky, they would just be probably more popular than Willett distillery or um, you know, Brown Foreman or any of them. And at that point we kind of knew, well, we couldn't just do Tennessee and New York. Like we're Kentucky boys. That was the whole thing at the very beginning was when we were doing pursuit series most of the things that we could get on the open market were from Tennessee, but we knew that we needed at least something from Kentucky to to kind of really round this out. And my co-host, Ryan, kind of broke down and he said, listen, like I've got a pretty good relationship with people over at Bardstown Bourbon Company. Let me just call them and see what they have. It was the biggest breath of fresh air we've ever came across because they were like, we'd love to work with you. We tasted through... Uh, I think six different mash bills that they were kind of playing around with. And they gave us like some one liters to kind of take home and start playing around. And their whiskey was just, we, we got it at like three and a half and we knew that we couldn't release it until it turns four, because we're going to make sure that we don't have an age statement on it. So, after several blends and several experiments that there was one mash bill that we were going to go with. And so we ended up saying like, okay, how many barrels of this and can we buy them? So uh, needless to say, they they sold us, you know, about 20 barrels worth uh, to be able to go into Pursuit Series, or sorry, for Pursuit United for this uh, this particular run. And we are now uh, on deck to do much larger contract distilling over there. Uh, too so it was it was over a year of just trying to find the right partners and I think that's the one thing that I really want to harp on this is that this is built more off of partnerships than it is just blanket sourcing or blanket contract distilling like we had we have established relationships with these people and part of what we want to be able to do is elevate their brands as a part of this. so that's why, we don't sit there and say like, oh, it's some undisclosed distillery in Kentucky or New York. Like, no, we want to be able to tell people like this is where this great whiskey comes from. And so that's kind of why we want to establish more of a partnership and not really hide behind a bunch of closed doors when we don't have
0: to. I was I was going to say, I think that what you're talking about is really, Bob and I have talked about this a lot, that there's this sense in the whiskey community, the, the modern 2020 and on whiskey community that like, man, if you're not transparent about what you're doing, like the whiskey consumer now is so much different than it used to be. And they're a lot less loyal than they used to be to like one specific brand. And so what what's important now really is that sense of community and like knowing what's going on and the relationships that you build And Bob and I have seen that at play, and and we just have a little podcast. I'm sure that you guys have seen that at play just immensely throughout your time.
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, we definitely see the ever-evolving consumer. I mean, I think we've all been in the the shoes that even people are doing it right now. Once we realize that we know how to read the back of a label, and it says distilled in Indiana – that narrows it down to maybe one place. So we mm-hmm. all really, we know where 95% of the rye comes <laughs> maybe, from on the show. Maybe
0: shelf. one place. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Unless it is like that distillery and you know it's from a distillery, like it's 99% positive, you know, it's coming from MGP. And and there's nothing wrong. There's, it's great whiskey that's coming from MGP, but we just know that that playbook's been done over and over. And we just wanted to be different and, and bring a unique factor to it.
1: Well Brad and I actually tried this a couple days ago we recorded our review in advance you know just to kind of make sure that there wasn't any any you know foul play any uh, bias at play here and so we're gonna throw over to our review now so Brad what do you say uh, three days ago us try this whiskey Let's get to it. Thank you. Right, so we are checking out Pursuit United. Brad, I am super excited for this. This has been kind of hard to come by. All of our friends on Instagram snatched up a bottle of it. Kenny was nice enough to send us samples of it. This is the first release under the Pursuit United label. You know, in the past, Bourbon Pursuit has done a lot of single barrel offerings, and now they have finally come out with their own product, which is this blend of straight bourbon whiskeys. So they they're pretty transparent about what they have in the bottle here, Brad. Uh, we know that it comes from three different distilleries and we know the origin of two of them. So one of them is Bardstown Bourbon Company. One of them is Finger Lakes Distilling. And then the third one is an undisclosed distillery in Tennessee. But they have assured us that it is not dickle. And that's, I think it's really funny that they definitely, th- definitely not dickle. <laughs> I think it's really funny that they put that on there because uh, Dickel products really seem to rile people up. There are a lot of people who just don't like it out there. So I love that they're like, we can't tell you where it is. It's not Dickel. All right. There lots of anti Dickel people <laughs> out there. <laughs> All right, Brad. So we are about to dive into this. It is no age stated. It is 108 proof. It retails for $65 a bottle Which, again, knowing the origins of it, knowing the blending process, I don't have a problem with it being at that price tag. But, you know, that's before we've tried it. So I will say we are Brad and I are recording this uh, days and days in advance of the rest of the episode. So we're going to have Kenny kind of help us intro this segment. As you've already heard, he may tell us some things that we don't know about this product that we say incorrectly in this part of the show, in this segment. Uh, but we thought it was important to do this tasting and this review in an unbiased way with Kenny not just sitting there listening to us give honest opinions because there, you know, there is a chance that this may not score super high. And if it does score super high, we also don't want to make it seem like we're just giving good scores out because Kenny's on our show. So we, we're we trying to do this in the most unbiased way possible. Brad, any final thoughts before we get into this tasting?
0: Yeah. I mean, if we have said anything that's incorrect that Kenny has, you know, set us straight on, make sure you let us know on Instagram, like lambast us for it. Like just we love that rip us apart. Um, If you hate our review, just tell us we enjoy the castigation. It's it's phenomenal.
1: Kenny's just out there like Kevin Durant making burner accounts just to roast (laughs) us. (laughs) Boom, roasted (laughs) at film whiskey sucks.
0: Sucks with an X. S-U-X. Sucks. Dude, when when we have a Twitter account dedicated to hating on us, like, I'm pretty sure that that's almost like when a musician has Weird Al cover one of their songs.
1: That's how you know like, you've arrived. Like,
0: you've made it. Right. All right, man. Let's try this. Uh, what are you picking up on the nose of this Pursuit United? Oh, my gosh. Bob, I, I honestly started nosing this uh, as you were giving your silly little disclaimer. And... I almost had to interrupt you. This nose is just beautiful. There's this decadent caramel. There's some dark cherry notes going on that like just assault my senses in the most beautiful way possible. Um, there's some there's some bits of vanilla and oak kind of underlying it. I am just blown away with this aroma. And I think that for me, this is a nine and a half. I think that this is one of my favorite noses that I have ever had.
1: Yeah, Brad. So I really like this. I don't know if I'm picking up quite as many things on it as you are. For me, the note that is is uh, most prominent is the floral nature of it. And even more than just being floral, it smells like roses. And I really, really like that. I get a lot of oak on this. Like it, it smells like uh, kind of like raw oak and roses, rose petals. You can get a little bit of the alcohol as well. I'm not really getting a lot of these sort of classic bourbon notes that you're picking up on it. It may just be because I just cracked my bottle. It hasn't really had time to open up and breathe yet. Um, But after about five minutes in the glass, what's really sticking out to me is that that scent of roses. Again, I like it. I wish it would have a little bit more of the complexity that you're picking up. So for me, I'm going to go ahead and give it an eight out of ten on the nose. Enjoyable, uh, but I'm not getting all of the variety of notes that you are.
0: Now, Bob, I will say my daughter has been a little bit stuffy lately, and so we have been keeping her room closed up with the humidifier on, and half the time when I go in there, it's like almost 80% humidity in her room. And so I think that I might be experiencing like a renaissance of the the nostrils because I feel (laughs) just completely wide open compared to how I normally do. All right. So you gave it
1: a nine and a half. I gave it an eight. Brad, let's take a sip and see what we think of this flavor.
0: Oh, wow. I feel like I moved from just smelling caramel to getting a little bit of a nutty flavor with it. That makes me think about toffee. Mm. And uh, if anybody knows me well, English toffee is hands down my favorite candy on the planet. Really? Like, I just, oh, my gosh. I never knew that, Brad. Oh, I love it. Uh, Trader Joe's has like a little like plastic box of of English toffee that's covered in nuts. That is spectacular. I, I just think it's the greatest thing ever. And so this and this is giving me all of those things. Not not super heavy on the nutty flavor, but that nice caramel with a mix of nuts in with it. Um, you You get that underlying flavor of oak that kind of strengthens near the end it's It's warm and sweet throughout the entire palette. I just think that this is phenomenal um i'm I'm gonna go ahead and give it a nine out of ten now
1: brad i'm gonna I'm already vowing I'm gonna come back to this in like a day or two and try it again because again, I literally just cracked my bottle, but I'm not getting again I'm not getting the notes that you are on this in terms of the sweetness when you said toffee, I think i'm I think I'm vibing with you a little bit there because. The the predominant note for me when I first took a sip on the very front of my tongue was salted butter. Like it's a very buttery mm. texture and it does have like this kind of saline quality to it that I wasn't expecting in a bourbon. Aside from that, Brad, this thing really brings the heat. Like I I was very aware that I was drinking a 108 proof whiskey here, uh, kind of in a similar way that I get when I drink a, a Weller Antique. It's right in that proof point where the alcohol, it it's not quite aggressive, but it makes itself known. And so I like the heat on this. I just don't think for me that this is a really sweet whiskey or a bourbon that like leans into the more sweet elements. It's not really caramely for me. I still like it. I still think it's really good. I'm just not picking up some of those uh, more candy elements that you are here. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give this a seven and a half out of ten on the taste, Brad. And I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that I'm not picking up what you are because... If I can be honest here, I actually think that I trust your palate more than I I would trust mine in terms of just complete (laughs) objectivity. You seem to pick up some really great notes that I don't get sometimes. And so I'm hoping that as this kind of opens up and develops a little bit on my shelf that I will get some of these like more buttery. Uh, caramely toffee type notes. I do think there's kind of an element of uh, like a really dark cocoa in this as I take a second sip as well, almost like a, a, a salted cocoa kind of a thing. I like it again. I'm just not getting what you are on this. So I'm gonna give it a seven and a half on the flavor.
0: Well, and as we get into the finish, I had mentioned that I I felt like there was some cherry, like a dark cherry on the aroma. I didn't notice that at all on the palate. I felt like it, like you said, it was mostly, honestly, your note of salted caramel hit me hard as well. There is that kind of saltiness to it that I really like. Um, But on the finish is where I got a lot more oak. But it also, to me, finished almost like a cherry pie, Hmm. like sweet, dark cherry, not. Not like overpoweringly sweet. Um, there's a little bit of that tartness from the cherry flavor, but I was just amazed because I, I, as I first took a sip, I, I thought I lost all the cherry, and then it came roaring back on the back end. And I, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed, Bob. I, I really, you're really having really a like euphoric mistake.
1: experience over there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna give the finish a nine out of ten. Nine out of ten. Wow. You know
1: what? I really like this, Brad, and as the more that I sip it, the more I think it is starting to open up and get some of those great kind of uh for me it's almost coming across more like a butterscotch than a caramel. And and again, the the note that sticks out to me is the salted butter note because I think it carries that kind of saline quality throughout, you know, the entire sip into the finish as I swallow it reminds it reminds me of butter as well. And sometimes you see that word buttery in like bourbon reviews. And I mean that in like the most literal way here. It's a very kind of oily finish for me. And I like that because it lets me know that it's still there. It's not drying in any way. The alcohol tingle pretty much stays on the tongue. Like it's not harsh at all after you swallow. The hug going down isn't like overbearing. I think for this proof point, this is about the best possible finish you could get. I'm also gonna give this a nine out of 10 on the finish. There he is coming around. All right. That takes us to overall balance, nose, taste, finish all put together, considered as one kind of cohesive experience. Brad, how did this do for you in terms of, you know, an experience that moved you from point A to point B to point C?
0: You know, Bob, I I think I've given a 10 out of 10 to maybe one or two other whiskeys on balance. I'm going to give it to Pursuit as well. I think that this is one of the most beautifully balanced whiskies I've ever seen and really it was the cherry note that did it for me. Hmm. The the fact that they could have it somewhat heavy on the aroma, it disappears a little bit on the palate and then comes right on back at the finish. To me, that's a sign that whoever, you know, blended these whiskies knew exactly what they were looking for and honestly like it almost felt like it had the touch of a master distiller blending these whiskies hmm. of Of like, it it feels like a true craftsman put this together. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like the Ron Swanson of whiskey communities (laughs) put this together.
1: You know, I I agree with that, Brad. And as I just
0: took my final sip from this, you know,
1: little dram I poured myself, I really tried to give it what they call the Kentucky chew, where you try to like kind of suck in some air and swish it around your mouth as you do it. And it really developed this kind of nice, almost like a pumpkin pie spice, like a little bit of clove, a little bit of nutmeg. Uh, the alcohol was still definitely there. There was a lot of oak character there. I'm still not picking up like the sweet caramely notes that you are, Brad. But I think this is a much more complex whiskey, especially after spending a few minutes in the glass. than I may have initially let on with my my aroma and my nose score. Uh, I think overall, this was a super enjoyable experience. You can tell that it was blended with
0: great care. I think I'm going to give this an eight and a half on balance. So this is a whiskey that, like I said, the 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 footprint that it's distributed in is somewhat limited. We can't get it here in Ohio, which is highly disappointing. Kenny, let's uh, get some, some work on that. You have some representatives <laughs> right here ready to sell it. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, but honestly... $65, Bob, this is one of, in my opinions, the best $50 plus bourbons that I've ever had. And that that really is a delineating price point for me. Like once you get above $50, it better be a daggone great bourbon for me to want to spend my wife's hard-earned money on this whiskey. <laughs>
1: Brad, like when I think about the price point here, one of the things that I keep coming back to is the idea of, you know, for better or for worse, when we know where a bourbon comes from, like if it's, you know, if it's made by Jim Beam or if it's made by Heaven Hill, we know that it's a big company. And so we're a little bit more harsh on high pricing when it's from a craft distiller. We're a little bit more lax or a little bit more lenient, I think, forgiving of higher prices because we understand the care the quality that went into that, you know, and and how little product they make. This is even smaller scale than that. This is just a a number of barrels that have been blended together by the guys at Bourbon Pursuit. And so for, for me, $65 really isn't breaking the bank for something that is this small run in nature. Like it's at the same proof point as a Weller Antique. Weller Antique right now in the state of Ohio is selling for $50 a bottle. In most states, people can't get it for that cheap. You're paying like $100 or more for Weller Antique. So like at the same proof point and knowing that it is infinitely smaller scale than that, I don't think $65 is bad at all. Now, Brad, it seems like you actually enjoyed the drinking experience of this whiskey a little bit more than me. I still think it's really good, well, well above average whiskey. Uh, And so for me, I'm going to go ahead and give this an eight and a half on value. I think it's really good. I think it's worth the pickup. And like, there's such a great story behind it because you know exactly where it's coming from. I think it's worth an eight and a half on value.
0: Yeah, I I think I'm just barely above you. I'm at a nine out of 10 on value. This, like I said, if this was like 50 or $55, I think that I would purchase it every single time the bottle ran out. Mm. Um, $65 is just enough where I'm like, yeah, that's that's a commitment, no doubt. But I am 100% in favor. If you can find a dram of this at your local whiskey bar, if you can find a bottle of it, I would highly recommend getting it. It's a really, really phenomenal whiskey, Bob. I'm just, I'm so happy right now. I'm happy as a clam. (laughs) So I'm
1: coming out to a 41.5 out of 50, which is nothing to sneeze at. It's very rare to get me over a 40. Brad, what are you coming out to?
0: Bob, I think that we've only had maybe one whiskey at like a 45 out of 50 for me. And I think I think it was the Booker's. I could be wrong. Bob, I'm coming out to a 46.5. Wow. 50. That's a 93 out of 100 for me. Goodness gracious. So that is putting us
1: out to an 88 out of 100 or a 44 out of 50. Guys, I think this is going to be hard to beat for our number one whiskey of the year, especially with Brad giving it uh, an unimpeachable score here. Like this has never happened on the film and whiskey podcast before. So uh, I think maybe we should disclose our scores to Kenny after we get out of here. Guys, I think this is a great whiskey. I think it's worth the pickup. If you can find it anywhere around you, it is worth purchasing. Brad, I have a feeling that you're going to be even more kind of full throated in your support than me.
0: Yeah. As soon as, you know, like you said, Bob, we're recording this a few days in advance. As soon as we get back on the horn here in a second with uh, Kenny, I'm going to be trying to get as many samples as I can. Oh, Kenny, I'm going to share them with friends. I'm going to spread the word. I promise. (laughs) All right. So that has been Pursuit
1: United. Brad, let's link back up with Kenny and let's continue talking about the movie Fargo. What do
0: you say? Let's get to it.
1: So that was Pursuit United, one of our higher rated whiskeys ever going to be hard to top that one for the season. We're welcoming back in Kenny now. Uh, I think we can break the news to Kenny that this was, I think, the highest score Brad has ever given to a whiskey on this podcast. Kenny, you guys knocked it out of the park, man. This is incredible stuff. Well, Brad gave me his Venmo before
2: we started, so it, it made it all
0: <laughs> pretty easy, S- smooth, easy. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the whiskey, right? So the, the funny thing is, Brad actually had
1: had tried it before we hopped on to record the review. Sometimes we try it live together, and sometimes, like you know, life happens, and we have to drink in advance and take notes. And we got on to record, and he's like, "Dude, have you tried this stuff yet?" And I was like, "No, I'm going to drink it live." And he goes, "Bob, it's." like he dropped so many f bombs he's like it's the best effing whiskey that i've had in years and That's he's like great guys thank you so like, much he goes you know he's like no pressure but i'm going to give it the highest <laughs> score anybody's ever given on this podcast <laughs> yeah all right we are getting back into talking about the movie fargo and that means that it is time for brad to give out his award for the week you know we still haven't thought of a really great name for these brad this is this is new to season 4 we've been calling them the filmies But that just sounds so generic. We have to come up with a better name for the Brad G. Awards. But until we think of that, Brad, what would you give Fargo the award for?
0: I would give Fargo, and I I might have hinted at this already, the award for the most Minnesotan sounding (laughs) movie ever created in the history of cinema. The You Betcha (laughs) Award. The You Betcha Award. That's right, and I think that I would point towards the conversation between the patrolman Lou and I don't Mister Mora. I think the bartender when when he's standing out there pushing water off of his driveway <laughs> with his broom. I would assume so that the driveway doesn't freeze. the p- The patrolman just kind of pulls up and is like, "Oh, hey there." I mean, that was the most Minnesotan conversation I think I've ever heard in my life. I love how that the conversation just ends. To the guy's like, "Well, I thought
1: I should call it in, so I called it in." End of yep, story. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just stands there.
2: <laughs> no, it was definitely the most Minnesotan. You betcha, kind of movie. I don't. I don't know if there's ever been anything that's even close to that, or if it's just you know mocks that that type of area or region in any other kind of movie. But it definitely stood out as something that you're not going to forget and. Hopefully it doesn't rub off. I'm not to say, it, hope it doesn't rub off you. And ha- in the South here, it might be a little weird for me rolling around saying, you betcha, you know, if I'm standing in line for <laughs> bourbon somewhere.
1: Well, Kenny, I actually think that's a perfect segue into, you know, what we like to talk about in the back half of these episodes, which is a little bit more of like a deeper analysis of the movie. And the first thing that I thought was really interesting was Joel and Ethan Cohen were actually born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is where they grew up. And so in some ways, You know, they they are chuckling. They're, They're laughing a little bit at the demeanor, at the accents of the people in their hometown. But ultimately, it's done out of love. And that's what I really, really love about this movie is that we aren't just mocking these people for the sake of mocking these people. It's the kind of It's the kind of observations that only come from growing up there, knowing exactly how these people tick, knowing exactly how their conversations go, knowing what it means when someone says, you betcha. And, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, we talked a little bit in the first half about this. The character of Marge really does, I think, embody what they believe about the people of this area, you know, and and all through the movie, she's saying stuff like, I bet you that these, you know, these uh, murderers didn't come from Brainerd, that's for sure. There's something about like this outside presence that's trying to, I don't know, encroach on this small town, you know, uh, Id- idyllic kind of thing they have going on there. And at the end of the movie, they really do bring it home that this is the kind of life that you really should be aspiring to, not something that's like. You know, tons of money or or finding get rich quick schemes. It's being grateful with what you have, and I love that. Ultimately, they choose not to make fun of these people,
2: but to honor them. Yeah, and I think you could probably even roll it back when you're just talking about the Coen Brothers actually being from Minneapolis. And when you when you think of uh, Marge as a character here, now probably not as a as a sheriff or a police officer, but it's probably like Aunt Susie or their next door neighbor, Becky, or something like that, that they knew growing up that is kind of like based off it, of, because that's, that's very, it's like I said at the very beginning of the show, like a very kind of like wholesome kind of attitude, like, you know, church going kind of folks that you just don't feel that could ever do anything bad. And, you know, she's going around, she's solving murders. And so I, I kind of see that as like a, a, a good kind of like, you know, kind of angle that you, that you get into this. Hmm. Um, you know, when you when you start thinking about, you know, more character development, it you know, with inside of the movie, and, and even to get into like the, the, the funny pieces, I mean, you, you start thinking of how everything, I mean, gosh, do you remember the part where Steve Buscemi was like just trying to get out of the parking garage and the guy wouldn't let him go after $4? He's just like, yeah, come on, just, right. just go for $4. <laughs> like... It, I mean, I think there was just like, there's just little scenes like that, that you're kind of like, well, this is also why we hate parking attendants because right. I mean, that's, that's a, you uni- know, that's a universal hate. That's not, that's not just like in the movie. I think everybody can kind of relate with that. Like, no, just like let the man out, like, let him pay us $4 and get out of there.
0: Well, and there, there's even that bit a little bit later and I know it wasn't the same parking attendant, but like he almost gets his revenge later because he kills <laughs> another parking attendant. Right. And it's like they wrote in this little bit of revenge that he gets on them. Very
2: true.
1: I want to talk for a minute about the funny parts of this movie because it is honestly chock full of really, really funny stuff. Um, Like the scene where they're both driving to the Twin Cities and Steve Buscemi spends like, you know, two minutes threatening to be silent and never actually shuts up. He's like, I'll do it. I'm going to stop talking.
2: Oh, fuck it. I don't have to talk either, man. See how you like it. Just total silence could play at that game. Smart guy. We'll just see how you like it. Total silence.
1: I love it. Anything involving Steve Buscemi is hilarious. You know, the part where William H. Macy is practicing how he's going to call his father-in-law and break the news that his wife's been kidnapped. And there's this huge buildup. And then as soon as he calls, his secretary picks up. <laughs> he has to ask for he has to ask for him by name. I just think there's so many great laugh out loud moments in this movie. Brad, Kenny,
2: funniest part of the movie for you guys. Uh, for me, I look at like Steve Buscemi as a character and how he is kind of like a, a, trying to be like a hard ass. I mean, that is his thing. He's supposed to be the gangster. He's supposed to be the person that's supposed to get stuff done. And then, you know, towards the end of it, shep who is the uh he's the mechanic comes and just completely like just beats him up out of nowhere just goes in the room and just kind of just owns him and kind of just puts him back in his place to kind of say like you're you're not this big tough guy like you're just a, a small guy with a gun so i kind of found that as it was a little darker humor but you know him just getting his ass beat with his own belt kind of made up for it
0: yeah i i I really love that. I'm going to point to a a Steve Buscemi moment as well. Uh, However, the line was delivered not by anybody actually in the movie. I just thought it was the funniest thing in the world and one of the wittiest script moments for me. When when Steve walks back into the cabin and his face has been shot and there's blood everywhere. And the TV, a, a character on the television says... Don't worry, I can explain. <laughs> it, like I didn't even notice that. It was literally perfect timing of like Steve Buscemi walks in and he doesn't say anything. And the TV says that line for him. I just thought that that was one of the wittiest, funniest moments of almost any movie I'd ever seen. I, I just loved that.
1: I also think it's great that they just continually play up. You know Buscemi's looks. How everybody that Marge talks to is just like, you yeah, know, he's kind <laughs> of oh, fun- funny. He's kind of funny looking. He's kind of funny. And they're like, well, funny looking. How? <laughs> you know, just like it. Generally funny looking. <laughs> like I lose it every single time, and, and especially when the two hookers are like, oh, you know, he wasn't circumcised. And she's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, was he funny? Scene. Was he funny looking apart from that? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> no further explanation. Just a funny looking guy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, even that is like almost like a self-aware type of joke of like, yeah, we cast Steve Buscemi and he's kind of a weird looking dude and he's known for that. So we're going to make jokes about him being a weird looking dude. Like I that that's just like a little bit of self-aware humor. That's just just brilliant.
1: So, Brad, like as we kind of wrap up here for the day, I've been thinking about that scene that you mentioned earlier, the scene where Marge and her husband are in bed watching something dumb on TV and talking about how he's been painting In this stamp competition and the stamp that he got selected for was the three cent stamp. But, you know, the people down the road got selected for the twenty nine cent stamp, which is how much a stamp was then. And it is such a great symbol or metaphor for everything that goes on in the movie before it, because he's kind of, you know, he's pouting and he's saying, I wish that I was on the twenty nine cent stamp. And essentially what he's doing is he's like, he's giving voice to what everyone else in the movie has been doing the whole time, which is I want more. I wish I had more. I wish I was on the 29 cent stamp instead of the three cent stamp. And Marge comes in in her Marge way. And she just says like, oh, come on. The three cent stamp is great. Everybody uses the three cent stamp. What happens when they raise the postage? And she kind of talks him down off that ledge. And Marge is the kind of person who sees the beauty in being on the $0.03 stamp. And she doesn't need to be on the $0.29 stamp. And, like, I don't know if I can think of a movie that boils down its entire plot or its entire theme into one scene in such a beautiful way. Because they're not talking about what she was doing solving
0: homicides, and yet they totally are. Do you know what I mean? Well, and I think that that nuance is so important. Because, like, as I was watching it, I... (laughs) I don't know if I'll, if I should say this or not, but I feel like there's a woke 2021 take on that scene that would lambast Norm for not celebrating the accomplishments of his awesome wife. Uh, do Do you know what I'm saying? Did you guys get that feeling at all? Because hmm. no, I, not really. I f- yeah, there was no uh, like well. celebration. There was no
2: celebration for for Marge. Was there?
0: No, there wasn't. And I, I think that there probably is. I would imagine that Norm and her relationship, he, he seems to be very proud of her and the work that she does. and But I was so happy with the way the film ended that it's just the two of them living their normal yeah. life. And like you said, Bob, she's just kind of like satisfied with her three-cent life and happy with the work that she does. And I, I love that. And I, I think that another part of the script I really, really loved was the fact that they don't make her out to be, like, shocked by these murders. Right. Like, like the fact that she looks at these murders, and it, it's not... They could have easily gone into this trope of, like, Oh, man, small county sheriff overwhelmed by this big city murders happening in her small town. Like, no, she just saw them and was like, Wow, this is kind of crazy. Can't believe this is happening. Let's, uh... Let's just do normal police work and, and see what happens here. She's a normal person, but she's totally unflappable, too. Like, she's not
1: affected by these things that she sees around her. She's consistently chipper and happy and grateful for, you know, who and what she is. And like, I, I again, like what you were saying at the end, I totally understand what you're saying now, which is like she doesn't get the big appreciation or celebration that she deserves at the end of the movie. But I think that plays into their point, which is that she is just a force for good in the world. She's surrounded by people who are corrupt and people who are doing terrible things and people who, you know, like all of us do fall victim to wanting more. And she's just this kind of consistent, you know, uh, voice in the ear saying like, no, what you have is enough. And I I
2: really do love that about her character. No, it is good. And it really plays into more the wholesome attitude and and everything that. You know, they try to portray as it and and knowing that maybe it's also something that it's like it is not a it's not a big city. It's not like Chicago. It's not Dallas, Texas. It's, you know, Brainerd. It's Fargo. It's just this. It's this quaint town. And that's that's how things were handled. Well, guys, I think we have talked about this movie long enough. I feel like we've
1: just like dove in headfirst talking about how deep this movie really goes and the themes and the subtext and all that stuff. It is time for us to quantify this. We need to give this movie a score out of 10. I'll, you know, I'll go first today. I love this movie. And up until this viewing, I always appreciated this movie, but it never really clicked for me. And I just happened to read a book that I have on my shelf, which which is about the, the Coen brothers and kind of looking at it through the lens of theology. And uh, they talked about the character of Marge and her as this symbol for good. And it really, truly opened up the movie for me in a way that I've never experienced it before. I really love this, Brad, more than No Country for Old Men. You know, there's a similar character in that movie with Tommy Lee Jones, who just doesn't understand what's going on in the world around him. And he says that. And Marge says that here. But I think where that movie kind of failed for me is it ultimately lands on, you know, there's just chaos and we're all going to fall victim to it. And there's nothing better than this. This movie kind of gives you a little something more to aspire to. I love the performances. I think the music, we didn't even talk about the score. I think the music is great in this movie. That little theme that plays throughout the movie is so catchy. I'm going to give this movie a nine and a half out of 10, Brad. That's impressive. Wow,
0: that—that is—that That is pretty high praise coming from the movie critic himself. Uh, the, the great nitpicker of our time. <laughs> I, for me, there are still certain elements of this movie that I think are overplayed. It, it's very slow paced throughout. Uh, there, there's certain parts that I struggle with, but overall, I, I think it's a phenomenal movie. I, I think I ended up giving uh, No Country a 7 out of 10. Um, you know, because I could recognize that there was some technical brilliance going on, but overall, I didn't care for the movie a ton. I'm going to give this an eight and a half out of ten. It's a it's a great film. It has a good moral, which is really what brought it up for me. I probably would have given this like a seven and a half to an eight, if not for that final scene with Marge and her husband. Well, I guess that leaves me to kind of wrap
2: it up here a little bit. You know, I, I do want to say, you know, guys. This is this is really kind of cool to come on here, you know, Brad and Bob. You do such a good job of analyzing the movie and kind of reading the subtext and kind of reading between the lines of what's happening. That's one of the things that I've never been good at as as a student or anything like that. Like trying to read a Shakespeare uh, play and understand exactly what's going on. Like you you all do a fantastic job of actually finding the morals and, and finding everything that, that – how you kind of connect all these dots. So, hats off to you all on, on being able to do that because I learned more about this movie by listening to you all than I did like the three times I watched it. Because I, I watched it at like face value and I'm like, oh, okay, he shot him or he's put him in a wood chipper. That's kind of funny. But, you know, <laughs> you you all, you all take this uh, at, at, a, at a, such a good approach uh, of being able to – to break it down uh, in its purest form, so so hats off to you all. Thanks, so man. now that now that you all have kind of been able to kind of open my eyes and and see a lot of the, the the pieces that either that I missed or that I just wasn't paying attention to, you know, I I definitely put up there as an eight, an eight out of ten. Um, kind of with you all, I think it's it is a really good movie. Uh, the storytelling, the the ability to kind of just bring in, just the characters and the character development in regards of you know, Fargo, North Dakota, Minnesota, and, and how, and how they, they played down small town life and, and how you all kind of saw that there is something adm- admirable about not wanting more and being content with what you have. So very good job guys on being able to break it down. Hey,
1: thanks man. And and listen, don't, uh, don't underestimate the comedic power of a leg sticking up out of a wood chipper.
0: <laughs> yes, That's, That visual is hilarious. I don't care what anybody says. Bob, you literally said earlier that Marge was just a chipper character. And I was like, come on, bro. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Trying to set you up for it. Well, hey, we want to say thank you again to Kenny
1: Coleman for joining us today. Kenny, before you head out of here, please plug everything.
2: I, I can do that. So make sure that you follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your podcasts, along with these guys here with uh, and Whiskey. It's always great to be able to come on and do this. Uh, but we're also on all the socials. So you name it, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Bourbon Pursuit. Uh, if you're interested in our whiskey, you can learn more about that at PursuitSpirits.com. And we will continue pushing out our single barrels as well as United for hopefully for years to come. So there will always be uh, new things to see on the website. So go check it out, PursuitSpirits.com. But you can also follow Pursuit Spirits on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook as well.
1: Well, hey, if you want to get at us about this movie, let us know your thoughts on the movie, Fargo. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter,
0: or Instagram at FilmWhiskey. Or if you want to leave us a voicemail, let your voice be heard on the Film and Whiskey podcast. You can go to our website, anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey and leave us a voicemail there. We'll be back next week. Joined by
1: another special guest, we have Chad and Sarah from It's Bourbon Night coming on the podcast, and we're going to be talking about the 1991 Best Picture winner, The Silence of the Lambs. So join us for that next week. Until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.